may be seated. Now, I was going to, I had planned to go um, back through Psalm 103 and continue in that um, uh, beautiful psalm of praise and worship, but I'm not. I've been led to go a different way, and it's not, I, this is going to be hard for me to do, but I want to share some things from my heart. There's a lot going on in our nation, and uh, it's really a scary time. When you have a significant percentage of the citizens of this nation that are calling for us to abolish the police department and to do away with law and order, we got a problem. And it becomes a very scary situation to deal with. Protests have been going on in various cities throughout the nation over the past 12 days in response to a brutal death of a gentleman by the name of George Floyd. And there have been shouts of systemic racism throughout our justice system and the protesters in the street, the peaceful protesters, the legitimate, legal, peaceful protesters uh, are demanding that that systemic racism be rectified. And I've been led, I believe, by the Spirit to help you understand and to help myself understand this week why these people believe what they believe and what could or potentially be the solution to the problem. So the first one I want to look at is George Floyd. The picture up here on the right-hand side, on your right-hand side, is of a white police officer with his knee on the neck of George Floyd. The actions that these police officers took, there were four of them involved in this incident, resulted in George Floyd dying. There were two autopsies conducted, one by the government and one by a private uh, doctor and when you read through all the fluff, if you look at the autopsy reports and read through all the fluff and get rid of the fluff, of all the politi politi politicization, is that word, is that right? Uh, of, of those autopsies, if you get rid of all of that, they came up with the same results. Uh, he died basically of complications due to the crushing of his neck and the impact of fentanyl in his system. He was high on fentanyl. So both autopsies led to the same conclusion. The officer with his knee on his neck has been charged now with first degree murder. The other three officers 
Two of them rookies that had been on the job for four days. That man is And uh, two rookies have been on the job for four days and been charged with accessory to murder. Whatever penalty the first the guy with the knee on his neck gets, they get if they're convicted. One of the uh, rookie cops is recorded, you can hear his voice, recorded during this incident, pleading for the cop to get his knee off his neck. But he wouldn't do it. The guy with his knee on the neck was a veteran police officer, and rookies just don't talk back to veterans. That's just the way the culture is. So now, George was not a saint. Let me tell you a little bit about George that I have learned by reading. And if you read and don't listen to the TV, you can learn things. George, I believe, became a Christian when he got involved with a church in Houston. He helped that church evangelize his old home place called the Third Ward, which is a, basically a ghetto in, in uh, Houston where he was raised. He was born in Fayetteville, North Carolina, but he was raised in Houston, Texas. But he was not an innocent fellow. He was convicted for armed robbery. He served a prison term of five years. I believe that the timing is that when he got out of prison, he got involved in that church. He may have gotten Jesus in prison, which would have been a good thing. But I can't verify that. I can't find any data on that. But I do know that he was had fallen away. In 2014 or 15 or somewhere around that time, he moved to Minneapolis, trying to find work and trying to get his life straightened out. He went there with a Christian work group and was working at a Salvation Army when he got there. But apparently all of that fell apart. He got a job in a couple of different places. One of those places was a bouncer in a bar. The cop with his knee on his neck was also a bouncer at the same bar. There's a history between these two that we don't know about. And the news has not told you. But there is a history. Their shifts overlapped. They knew each other before this incident. So don't forget that in your mind. Which may have led to the charge being first degree murder instead of second degree, which requires premeditation. In other words, the officer may have taken advantage of the moment to take him out. Dirty cops exist right at the top of the FBI. Just a side note. So this man was not a saint. George was not a saint. He is being lauded as the saint of all saints. He's not a saint. Guess what he is? A man. Just like me. There were good things in George's life. There were bad things in George's life. He did not deserve to die this way. Whether he was high on fentanyl or not, he was subdued, and he did not deserve to die this way. That was injustice. You see about that? It's the face of injustice. That is injustice. This is Brianna Taylor. Brianna Taylor was killed in Louisville 
If you read the headlines on CNN, it says police officers storm home, storm apartment, I think it says. Police officers storm apartment and begin shooting, killing Brianna. But then you read. And when you read, you find out the truth. The police officers were after two suspects that were dealing in major drug trade in Louisville. Unbeknownst to the officers who approached this apartment door, the second suspect had already been arrested. They were looking for the first suspect, which they believed was in this apartment. The CNN report says that they went to the wrong apartment. That's not true. The CNN report says that they opened fire as soon as they opened the door. That's not true. The truth is that they slammed the door down without announcing themselves. And the man in the apartment, 2.15 in the morning, opened fire on them. And they fired back. They shot the man and they shot Brianna. Brianna was shot eight times and died. Uh, the man was shot one time in the leg. He survived. He was not charged for firing at the police. He was not charged for drug trafficking. He was let go. There are FBI's investigating charges against the police. We don't know where that's going to go. What is the face of injustice here? Who was the innocent one? Who was the one that didn't do anything? Brianna. That was injustice. Why was it injustice? It was injustice because the police killed her, but maybe not maliciously, where investigation will show. But the boyfriend endangered her by being there knowing that he was a drug trafficker. She was an EMT. See the uniform she's wearing? She's an emergency response person and was in training to become a nurse. She had her life together. And this man brought her down. That's injustice. This is the worst one I've seen so far. This gentleman's name is David Dorn. 77 years old, he's a retired captain from the police force. He had a friend of his that owned a pawn shop in Minneapolis. He told the friend that he would be glad to go guard the pawn shop for him during these riots. Seven suspects broke through the front door in the glass of the pawn shop, two of them brandishing weapons, shot David Dorn dead and robbed the pawn shop of everything it had. David Dorn was a nice guy. He was a decorated police officer, children, grandchildren, a great family. He was a good man. That's the face of injustice. Why did he have to die? Because a bunch of looters took advantage of protests going on. People protesting things that they believed. Honestly, legally, they took advantage of that scenario and they looted and robbed and burned. 
In Minneapolis, during this same riot, they burned down the police precinct. They burned the building down. And now they're talking about wanting to, instead of replacing the police department there in that precinct, to erect a memorial to George Floyd. David Dorn was a victim. He was a cop for 40 years. A clean cop. A good cop. A person that contributed to his community. He was dead. That's the face of injustice. How about this one? That's what I look like in mama's womb. That's what you look like in your mama's womb. Give me some numbers. Number of abortions from 1973 to 2018, 61.8 million babies dead. 186 abortions to every 1,000 live births. That's 18.6% of our population wiped out. Twenty seventeen abortions totaled over eight hundred and sixty thousand. Twenty three hundred and sixty two per day, one hundred per hour. One abortion every ninety six seconds. That is injustice. A lot of what The protesters in the street are complaining about is systemic racism. Profiling. I could have shared the story of Ahmad Arbery over in Brunswick, Georgia, who apparently was jogging down a road in a white neighborhood and two vigilante jerks, rednecks, shot him down. There's a lot more to that story too, but it certainly seems that those guys had bad things on their minds when they went out. He was uh, possibly a robber, uh, possibly involved in a lot of burglaries in the area. They don't know. They're not revealing that information. Once the FBI starts to get involved, or the, in this case, it was the Georgia Bureau, uh, the GBI, once they get involved, everything kind of hushes down because they don't leak any of their investigations out to the public. They don't want to pollute a jury pool that's going to sit in front of these guys. So, but one of the main things that I heard from some of the protesters that have been out in the streets since George Floyd is that we're tired of being hunted. I said this in the newsletter. Some of you probably haven't gotten the newsletter yet. But Joy Reid, one of the popular MSNBC hosts, uh, she's a, uh, an African-American woman. She made the statement in an interview on one of the other shows, one of the morning shows, uh, she made the statement that all black people in America uh, live in a world where they are hunted. They're hunted by the police. No, they're not hunted by the police. Some people wonder why 
uh, and I've heard a lot of African-American people say this, why black people are profiled. If a black person is riding down the road, are they more apt to be pulled than a white man? If a black 18-year-old is driving a car down the road, are they more likely to be pulled over by a cop than a white 18-year-old driving down the same road? The answer is yes. Statistics prove that. But there's a reason. I pulled up some reports off the FBI this morning. 37%, no, excuse me, I read the wrong number. This is the right one. Okay. 34.9% of all the crimes committed by an 18 year old or younger in the United States of America is committed by a black man. Black man. 34.9%. Now, African Americans comprise 13% of the American population. So it's three times more likely, based on those ratios, that a criminal 18 or younger will be black than white. If you look at it that way. Of course, 61% of the crimes from are white kids. But when you look at the population, it makes the numbers look different than they really are. You have to get to the truth of statistics to understand what the problem is. So why would African Americans on a ratio basis, based on a comparison to the population, why would they be more apt to commit crime than white kids? Isn't that the question we should be addressing? Isn't that what we should be asking? Isn't that how we should seek a solution to the problem? Well, one reason might be because they're less educated. Another reason might be because they have less money. A third reason might be because 72% of them were born into a single family, a single mother family. Don't you think those factors play a role in this? 50% of all the children, all the children in America are born into single family, single parent families. Don't you think that plays a role? Here's another one that plays the role. How about the lack of attendance in church? How about the lack of involvement of our youth in church? How about those factors? Aren't those factors part of the equation here? Those protesters that are walking the streets claiming that there's systemic racism and all this stuff and we need to solve it, are they offering solutions to that? How about let's start with the solution of every child should be born into a household with a man and a woman, a father and a mother, where they can be raised and nurtured in the admonition of the Lord. How about let's start there? Let's get that problem fixed first. Let's put families back together again. We found out with Lindsay and Austin. Very quickly, what does the government reward? No marriage. They were better off financially. They were better off insurance-wise. They would be better off in a lot of ways if they were married because of the way the government handles things. doesn't make sense, does it? Now, I've talked about a lot of injustices here. And I've mentioned a few solutions. But we need to spend a little bit of time 
reminding ourselves of the greatest injustice that ever happened in history. John, the second chapter. Verse 3, it says, And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto them, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now what he did, as his first miracle on the face of the earth, is turn water into wine, and I'm mad at him about it. But that's just me. You can't be mad at Jesus. Yeah, I can. In a loving way. Don't understand that. Alcohol is the root of all evil in this nation. Why do I say that? I mentioned this to Austin this morning when I was looking at these statistics. He came with me earlier this morning to set up everything. In uh, 2017, there were 756,000 driving under the influence arrest. People drunk out on the highway driving. And then Austin made the comment, and those are just the ones that got caught. How many, how many DUI, how many drivers under the influence out there do we have to have before we understand alcohol is a problem? And why Jesus chose this one to be his first miracle, I will never know. But he did. But remember what Paul said, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's expedient. But here's my point. This is an innocent miracle. It showed his authority over nature. It showed his obedience to his mother. How about that? He obeyed his mama. And he showed his miraculous powers. In that same town later, so Jesus came again under Canaan of Galilee. That's where the wedding was. Where he made the water and the wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now, supposedly this nobleman has heard the story of Jesus changing water into wine. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus went on to say, saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Now, not only did Jesus heal the son, answer the prayer of the nobleman, but he did it long distance. He didn't go to the son. He didn't touch the son. He showed his power and authority over sickness. He showed his power and authority over everything that is nature. And he healed the boy without ever seeing the boy. But 
don't forget the chastisement that he gave the nobleman. What was the chastisement? Read that in verse 48. Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Well, the nobleman saw signs and wonders, and he believed. Let's go on. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. Now, here is a very interesting situation. First of all, the centurion is a Roman. Now, the Romans are holding the Jews hostage, if you will. They are enslaving them and, and, and basically dominating them. They have taken over their territory. They are the kingdom. They allow the Jews to exist. They allow the temple to run. They allow them to play religion, whatever they want to do. But they are still their lords and masters. And the, and the Jews were required to do whatever a centurion ordered them to do. If, if a Jew walked up to a centurion and, and the centurion would say, you go get me some water and feed my horse. They had to do it. They had to drop whatever they were doing and do it. Otherwise, they would be found guilty and thrown into prison. The Romans ruled the roost. Okay? So, so but this centurion probably had heard the nobleman's story. Don't you think? Because he asked, basically, believing, knowing that Jesus was capable of healing his servant long distance. You see how it all kind of works together? The one miracle, the water to wine, led to the second miracle, which is now leading to the third miracle. And the story continues, for I am a man under authority. These are the words of the centurion. Having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. He marveled. And said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Right? Then Jesus said unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He was talking to a Jew. Now, he's talking to a Roman, looking back at his disciples, saying, I haven't found this kind of faith among you. This Roman centurion knows more about me than you do, has greater faith than you do. I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the Gentiles will be populated with the Jews in heaven. We are all going to heaven. Isn't that a good thing? He concludes this story by saying, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer, outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way. And as thou hast believed, 
so it be done unto thee. And his servant was healed in that self-same hour. Listen to what Jesus said to the centurion. As thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. You believed. We have to have faith. We have to have faith. What is the title to that slide up there? The man that walked the face of the earth, made the lame to walk, the blind to see, raised the dead, caused the boy, boy with, the, the servant with palsy to be healed, healed, the boy that was sick to be healed, the man that did all these miracles, we crucified. That's injustice. That's real injustice. If there was anybody that has ever lived, that ever will live, that did not deserve to die, it was Jesus. When you think about George Floyd or Ahmaud Arbery or Breonna Taylor or David Dorn or any of the other victims, both police officers and civilians that have been part of all this story for the last few months, you couldn't possibly compare them to Jesus Christ, could you? couldn't compare myself to Jesus Christ. I deserve to die much more than Jesus would ever have deserved to die. And yet we did that. But what's worse is that by the way that some Christians live, they keep crucifying him over and over and over again. Some way, somehow, it's got to register in our mind the great sacrifice that Jesus made for us. He chose to give his life. He chose to die. He chose to carry out the plan of salvation so that you and I would believe and by our belief be saved. Why in the world weren't the streets of Jerusalem, the streets of every known city in the world at that time, why were they not full of protesters protesting the injustice done to the Savior? We protest, rightly so, in many ways, the injustice done to these people that we've mentioned. Though none of them be perfect, some of them with better reputations than others, but none of them perfect. 
and yet we scream loudly and we holler and we protest. This is an injustice that must be cured, that must be fixed. And yet we not lift one voice concerning the injustice done to our Savior. That continues to be done to our Savior as we turn our back on Him, as this nation turns its back on Him, as we pursue all the evils that's going on in this world. I have said this more than once in my household when we looked at the videos on the TV of all the rioting going on and these buildings being burnt down and, and the Macy's store in, in New York cleaned out from the looters. I've seen it many, many, said it many times as I've watched those videos, that is the face of evil. That's what evil looks like. That's what happens when you turn your back on the living Savior. That's what happens when you don't recognize the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. And you don't recognize the fact that there is a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. I must admit, after I read all the stories, by the way, there was a story in Christianity today, some years ago, I think it was 2014 or 2016, about George Floyd and how a great a person he was to help them get into the community of the third board to, to witness people, to access a community that they would never have been able to go into without somebody on the inside getting them there. I, I must admit, as I read more and more about George Floyd, He's the one I probably feel more sorry for. And the reason why I feel that way is because apparently at one time in his life he knew what a relationship with Jesus was about. And somehow along the way he lost it. I, I, I believe the scriptures. He did not lose his salvation if he had it. If he had it, he didn't lose it. But he was not walking with Christ when he died. Otherwise, the fentanyl wouldn't have been there. Counterfeit money, the, meth, the meth, uh, methamphetamines. Those things wouldn't have been part of his life. But I don't know George. I'll never have a chance to know George because of an injustice. But we need to focus on the injustice that was done to our Savior. That's where we need to be. I will share one other story with you real quickly before we conclude of it on the screen and I forgot to uh, and I meant to get all the details of it and I forgot but I saw this gentleman interview he owned a, a play it again sports shop did you see that Austin happen to see that one uh, he owns a play it again sports shop and uh, it was looted the people broke in they have it on camera they have images of the suspects and so they're going to try to find them and prosecute them but uh, I think it was three days later, he was in the store cleaning up the mess, working, and a man walked in. And it kind of startled him when he walked in because the store was obviously closed. But he walked into the store carrying some stuff, uh, a couple of baseball bats and, and some other things. And he walked in and he told the man, he said, sir, he said, I was one of the looters. And I can't sleep at night. This is your stuff and I needed to bring it back. <clears throat> and I'm 
tearing up because the owner of that store teared up when he was interviewed on Fox. He told about how the man came in so sorrowful that he had done what he had done. And he asked the owner to forgive him. You know what the owner did? <clears throat> he said, son, I said, I forgive you. Furthermore, I'm going to tell the police not to charge you. You've made your restitution. You're good to go. Who's living like Christ? So maybe, just maybe, through all this looting, maybe there'll be some people that come to know Jesus. And yes, businesses are devastated, and there are people that are dying on the streets, both civilian and police officers. In New York, one was stabbed, one police officer was stabbed, and two, two were shot, and, uh, and the person that perpetrated those acts was also shot. This is going to continue for a while. But maybe somehow, someway, some good people will be able to reach other people for Christ. That's what we need to pray for. One last verse to share with you. Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. You want justice? I got a challenge for all those protesters, legal and illegal. I got a challenge for all the people that are walking on the news stories and on the TV and, and crying out for justice and crying out that this be fixed and that be fixed and all these things fixed. I got a message for them. Start pleading for Christ to return. Because the ultimate solution to racism, the ultimate solution to injustice, the ultimate solution to evil, the ultimate solution to sin is for Jesus Christ to assume the throne. And he will one day. He will split the eastern sky. He will come with a shout. He will come with the trumpet sounding. We in Christ will be raised first and then all those that are dead before will be raised and we will join him in the air. And then seven years later, he will establish a thousand year millennium on this earth. And then after that, he will establish his kingdom on a new heaven and a new earth. There, righteousness and justice will prevail. Truly, we can never see that until that day. Matt, what's the hymn of invitation? Right.